We are going to continue our journey through the book of Ephesians, and there's a bit of a gear change now in chapter 2. It's appropriate that the chapter does break at this juncture, because what Paul did in the first chapter, writing to a church in Ephesus, this very big cosmopolitan city on a coast full of commerce and industry, many different um, belief systems in the city, a large temple that used to sort of seat up to 20,000 people, major arenas, the... the, um, a statue of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world, this massive city, he's writing to them in the first chapter, he gets quite big picture with them, and now what's going to happen is he's going to get quite specific in chapter 2. In, in, in summary of chapter 1, if you haven't been part of the journey, there's one verse in verse 10 where he speaks about Jesus Christ, and he says, you know, the thing about Jesus Christ, he's going to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, which is an incredible claim. He's basically saying, Jesus is the one who's going to unite everything in heaven and on earth. And really the book then rolls out what does it look like to be united to Christ and the implications for everyone. I'm going to be looking specifically this week at what it means to be united to Christ as an individual. You'll see Paul will speak about you. He's going to make it personal now. He goes very general in chapter 1. Now he's saying, now this has implications for you as an individual. What does union with Christ look like for you as an individual? And then next week when Steph's with us, he's going to then talk about what does this new humanity do together? When they gather together, what does it look like? And he's going to speak about how it's possible that no matter what your race is, your gender, your history, your differences, there is an incredible new humanity that is formed when we are unified with Christ. And I do think the world needs to know what that new humanity would look like. Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. So this passage is probably word for word one of the most powerful descriptions of what union with Christ makes. What does Jesus unifying the world look like and how is that achieved? We get to read possibly one of the most word for word, most power packed passages and we're going to unpack it together. So let's read together uh, Ephesians 2 uh, verses 1 to 10. Paul writing says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, all, all of us, like the rest of mankind. But God been rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks be to God for his word to us this morning. And this passage, if you just read it for the first time, maybe in a long time this morning, I think you already have kind of seen that there's quite a basic structure to what's happening there. The first three verses talk about a life that we've been saved from, a life that we've been saved from. And then the verses 8 to 10 speak about a life that we've been saved for. You know, kind of like this is what, this is what change can happen. 
And the middle bit kind of describes how do you go from here to there? How do you go from this past life to this new life? How do you go from here to there? That's what the middle bunch of verses describe. And I thought quite a nice way to structure it is not to go chronologically, but we're actually going to look at the life that we were saved from, that Paul's speaking about, this life they were saved from, to the life that they're now saved for. And then finally, we'll get around to how does that change happen? So we're going to, we're going to tackle it in slightly different order to what you might expect. But the idea is to understand the union with Christ, the difference the union with Christ makes to these individuals, that there was a life they were living which has been completely transformed, and how did that happen is kind of the big question which Paul is addressing. We're going to go through this passage and then end our time together in responding with communion as well as worship. So let's go for it. Let's read again those first three verses. Remember, this is the life that they were saved from. Let's just remind ourselves what it said. It said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, this is the picture that Paul's painting. He's speaking about a people that were dead. Now, notice they're still walking, so he's not talking about literally dead, but he's speaking about spiritually dead. They, they're walking in in trespasses and sins. And you'll see that word comes up following, that they are following the course of this world as well as following the prince of the power of the air. And without saying too much, you'll notice that Jesus, when he came, often one of the first words out of his mouth would be, follow me. He was offering an alternative. He was, he was saying, you are following something. We're all following something. But there's an option here to follow something else. And you'll notice there are three kind of big categories. What are we following? We're following the course of the world, which is just generally how cultures of people get together. They decide this is what's valuable, and then we all align with that, and that kind of sets the tone for how we live our lives, just following what everyone else sees as valuable. He then says, also, you're following the prince of the power of the air, and there's a, there's a real spiritual reality to the um, truth that there is an enemy of God, and there's an enemy of God that, that promises the kingdoms of this world. When he, when he tempts Jesus, when Jesus was with us, he says, hey, all these kingdoms that are mine can be yours. He's describing how all these value systems that shape the world are, are his, that there's this presence of evil that he influences the world via. And one of the most effective tricks he can play is to make us think that he doesn't even exist, that there isn't this power behind all these value systems in the world, and we're following him. And we might want to spend a lot of time to pull, tell me more. I want to know about the devil. How does the devil work? But I would suggest that we can already move on to the third influence, which is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Why? Because when we actually examine our own hearts, we get a little hint as to how the devil operates. Uh, there's almost a throwaway line in 1 Timothy 3 where we're talking about what it means to be a leader in the church. And, and the advice given by Paul in that case was oh, don't pick someone who's a new believer because they might become conceited and fall away or, or puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, what was the devil's problem was he, he became conceited, he became puffed up, he became self-centered. And when we examine our own hearts, that's exactly the slippery slope we start to go on. We place ourselves in the place of God, and we see everything through that lens. And so if you want to understand the devil, look at your own selfishness, your own self-centeredness, and you'll start to realize that when you are so acting, you're acting like him. You see, we live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world, but we also live in a world which is full of rebels, that's what Paul's describing here, full of rebels that are taking God off his throne and putting ourselves there instead. Um, 
Let me try and think of another analogy. Um, I've sometimes in business context, people ask about the WIFM. Have you ever heard about the WIFM? Which is, what is in it for me? It's like a, it's a way of like analyzing any situation. Like, okay, what's the WIFM? You know, that's the shorthand. What is in it for me? And it kind of can be described as a way of all of us looking at the world saying, yeah, there's value systems in the world. There's a devil who's influencing those value systems. There's my own self-centeredness. And it means that in a sense, I've almost got this little calculating chip that I carry into every circumstance. And this little calculating chip is always asking the question, what what is in it for me? No matter what circumstances, what people, no matter where I find myself, that calculating chip is hard at work. And it usually means that I'm going to behave in a way that is best for me. The best way to get out um, the value of a moment. And that does mean I'm going to behave myself in all kinds of contexts because I'm going to realize in order to be well regarded, I can't come across as a super selfish pig, right? So I'm, I'm going to kind of hide it and calculate how best to do it. And it might look sacrificial, but it's actually very calculating. It's very calculating. And this ego, which we carry around, which Paul's describing to those in Ephesus, is an ego that is exhausting. It's an exhausting beast. You're going to be miserable trying to feed this calculating machine all the time. You're going to be restless. You're not just broken, but you're rebellious. You're carrying out, as you read there, the desires of the body and the mind. And by nature, you are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us, by being these self-calculating individuals, have taken God off the throne, placed ourselves there, and are trying to make it work. It's a frustrating experience, but we're trying to make it work. And you'll notice the description there, children of wrath. And what that describes is also something we're probably very interested in. But it speaks about our, our state before God. We might say, but what does it mean to be a... To be children of wrath, how does, how does that work? Because maybe that word conjures up for us anger. And we're talking about Father's Day here and some of the fathers. We know what that means when you are frustrated and you let the anger get the better of you. And you kind of think that is wrath. You know, there's anger and then there's wrath. Like there's a, there's a growling, dragon-esque kind of anger that you access. But that's not at all what gets spoken of here. You see, the word wrath here speaks about a settled opposition. It's a God who's looked at our lives and said, you have replaced me with your own desires. You're asking the question, what's in it for me? And I stand in opposition to that because that is death and I stand for life. And maybe a way of understanding that is if you were a parent and you were a loving parent and you saw your child start to dabble in drugs, for instance, and it's a very addictive drug and it's going to lead to all kinds of negative consequences and you stand at this moment seeing your child start going down that road, what would a loving parent do? What would a loving parent in that moment, would they just go, well, that's the choice they've made? Or would they stand in settled opposition? Would they say, this is not the way of life? I stand in opposition to what is happening. This isn't a parent that flies off the handle and just kind of loses it. No, this is a parent that says, I can see the harm this is doing, and I'm stepping in, opposing what is happening. So Paul speaks about a life that they once lived. Not in union with God. It's a life of rebellion. It's a life of what's in it for me. It might look externally super sacrificial, but it's calculating. And ultimately, God looks at it and judges it and says, I stand in opposition to that. Because that is a life of death. It is a life of walking in trespasses and sins. It's a life that is apart from God. And he doesn't leave us there. He then speaks about a life that we could be saved for. And let's quickly read those verses now. From verse 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved. This is the new picture of life. This is where life is found. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Now, there's lots here. What, what, are the, what, what happens between this? We're going to get to, but let's just describe what this new state could look like. You'll notice, first of all, that this new state is a gift. This union with God is a gift. It's right there very early on. He kind of puts it there. It is the gift of God. It's not just a gift. It's the gift. This is the game changer that, that our lives can be based on. There is the gift of God. There is a rest available to us that, that there isn't something we've earned. There's something we've received as a gift from God. And so when life happens, we're not thrown off because we've, we've received this greatest gift that we can enjoy. How do you access this gift? You'll notice it's by grace you've been saved through faith, through, through trusting and resting. It's more than just intellectual. It is intellectual as we discussed last week, but there's something more. There's a, there's a trust that we're placing in this God. We're trusting this God and we're receiving the gift from this God. Now, in my research, I was blown away by something that I never really appreciated before. In verse 9, it says, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that word boast, if I had to ask you today, what does that word boast mean? You would say, um, probably like me, it's bragging, right? It's like if you boast about something, you kind of subtly bring it up in conversation, like, oh, I went for a run yesterday. You know, like, but tired. Why? Please ask me why. Please ask me why, you know? And... And we kind of crack jokes about this. You know, how do you know someone is, went to that school? How do you know someone does that exercise program? It's like, they'll tell you within the first minute. You know, that's kind of the, the thing that we do. We talk about this boasting. It kind of means bragging. <clears throat> but not in, not in the days that Paul was writing. In the days that he was writing, to boast was something different. Imagine the scene. You're about to go out into battle, and you're facing an enemy. And you don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. History hasn't been written yet, right? You don't know how many there are. You don't know their tactics. You don't know how brutal they are. And you're the army, and it's the night before, and you know you've got a 50-50 chance the next day. How do you engage with each other that night before? <clears throat> what do you do? And the word they spoke of would be you would boast to one another. So you would gather as an army and say, guys. Look at our chariots. Look at our weapons. Yes, chariots, weapons. Rah, and everyone would kind of roar by that. And the next person would step into the circle and say, look at our king. Look how amazing our king is. He's done this battle. He's tactically brilliant. We can trust him with the orders. Ah, king. It's like, and look at all of us. We are battle. You know, we're, we, we've done this. We're experienced. There are many of us. We probably outnumber them. Rah. And that was what it meant to boast. It was to find a confidence to proceed with life, to boast in something was this is where I'm getting my confidence. It's my weapons, it's my numbers, it's my you know my ruling governor. That is how I can step forward. Now here's the important thing which Paul's saying. He says, Can you see that we all do this? We all find those things that we boast in that help us to proceed in life with confidence. We all do this. We all live in lives that are looking for things to boast in. It's a life of scrambling for identity, scrambling for self-worth, self-esteem, scrambling to perform, and it can be absolutely exhausting. So what would a life look like that wasn't full of this boasting? That's kind of what Paul's saying. This is the new life that's available to us. What would this life look like, this life of faith, this life of grace, this life without boasting? I've been kind of helped by an Australian, and I know it's hard to say that, but I have to say it, I have to acknowledge him. Uh, Mark says, he leads a church in Melbourne, Australia, and he gave this picture of the modern life, and he's kind of saying, we've been told that actually it's possible in our modern story to live a life of meaning apart from God, an individualistic life, and in many ways he gives this picture of us, there's a safe, and you know that's a safe with lots of dials, and you've got to go clockwise, anti-clockwise, got to find the perfect combination. Once you've done the perfect combination, the safe will swing open, and there will be treasures on the other side. Picture Scrooge McDonald. 
duck swimming through his gold coins or, or that Instagram holiday, that perfect job, that perfect group of friends, the family that's just perfectly aligned, everyone's getting straight A's. It's like this amazing life that if we just get all the dials right is, is on the other side. We can, we can boast in that life and we can go out with confidence. But he says the reality is that that's in a dangerous illusion and most of us find ourselves on the other side of the safe, still figuring out what all the combinations mean. We're sitting on a hard floor, we're kind of cold and we're going, this isn't working and we take it all on ourselves. It's a high performance life that we're trying to live and we're scrambling to find confidence but we're just not getting the combinations right. Everyone else is not getting the combinations right except for us. And he's saying that's how we can live our lives sometimes. What's getting introduced here is a totally different way, a whole new life of grace based on faith and where we acknowledge that our lives can be totally different to spinning the wheels trying to make it all work but to actually rest in the salvation that Christ has secured for us. A restful, graceful, grace-based life. And I just want to quickly compare and contrast the scrambling life to this grace-paced life. And I've had some heart surgery as I've reflected on this. Tim Killers helped me to do this. Let's just walk through a couple of comparing contrasts. Like, how, how's this? Do you find um, there's a difference in your life between anger and contentment? Uh, anger on this side and kind of contentment on this side. You see, if you believe that everything is a gift from God, like more than you deserve, it's a gift from God, that means no matter how life goes, you're going to say, you know, well, Lord, you know what's best. And uh, I don't deserve as much as I already have in you. So I'm going to face this thing. As difficult as it is, I'm, I'm going to find the resources to trust you and face it. And there's going to be a contentment to my life. But that's not how you react if deep down inside you're actually looking for something to, to boast in. You're looking for something to rest in. You're trying to earn your salvation. You're trying to earn your sense of confidence. So you're working very hard. You're spinning the dials. And when life doesn't go well, the circumstances aren't working out. You're not able to ever get on the other side of that safe. You get mad at life. You get mad at God. And there's always this undercurrent of anger, not contentment. Kind of always angry. You're always grumpy. You know, life is just never treating you right. Life has never been fair because you deserve so much and you work so hard, but it never delivers. My question is, do you have a life of absolute contentment? Or do you find yourself always chafing, kind of always grumpy, always angry? This is where, this is where it hits the road for all of us. It's a life of contentment, a life of anger. There's another way. There's a, a life of acceptance versus a life of disdain. A life of acceptance versus a life of disdain. Now, it's okay if you, and there are many people I know that work very, very hard in life here. You work very hard. You're a hard worker. There are many people in this room that can be very proud of saying, you know, whatever else happens in life, I'm a productive worker. I flip in, put in the hours. I work really hard. It's okay to be happy about that. It's okay to say, that is cool. I'm, I'm proud of that. But if that becomes your identity marker, if that's what late at night you say, that is the thing that I bring to the table is my hard work, that becomes the thing you boast in. It's the thing that really earns you confidence in this world. And here's the dark side, is that you have to despise or disdain everyone who you regard as lazy. You just can't stand them. You're not sympathetic. You just look down at them. A life of boasting in this is a life of looking down your nose at people of maybe different cultures, different work ethics, different races, different politics, different religions. Just anyone who's different to you is just not as productive as you. Of course, you're a bit more subtle. I mean, you would never let this disdain go out in public because you want to be well thought of, and everyone knows that disdainful people are not well regarded. But as a self-centered person, if you're anything like me, you can walk around despising people, looking at different kinds of people, uh, and not saying it out loud, but thinking to yourself, man, these guys irritate me. There's, there's, there's a degree to which they haven't ever worked as hard as I have or got their stuff together like I have. 
look, let's look at ourselves. Are we miserable people? Are we going through life kind of going, I'm, 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 I'm surrounded by these people that don't get it? Or are we, are we able to find a rest, not a disdain, but a rest of acceptance that says, you know what, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I've been accepted when I was unacceptable. There's no, no need for disdain. There's no, there's no possibility for disdain because I've been saved by God who brought me near. Final one, we, we can become people that are angry, content, disdainful, or accepting. We can become people that can be bitter versus people that are able to forgive. Do you know, if, you, if you're saved by grace and by faith, and it's all that God has done in your life, you're able to forgive others. And the reason for this is quite simple, you see. It's, it's very hard to remain bitter and hold a grudge if you know it's something that you have done or something that you're very capable of doing. You know, if you can look in life and say, yes, I've done that, I've totally done that as well, then it's a little bit easier to say, you know what, I, I've been there, I want to forgive you. But if you, if you hold such a view of yourself, it's called pride essentially, that, that you'd say to yourself, I would never do that, I would never do that. You can hold on to bitterness and you can hold on to that grudge for a very, very long run. You can walk around feeling very bitter and feeling very proud and you struggle to forgive. But you see, a, a sinner saved by grace finds a resource saying, you know what, I've been saved by nothing I've done and I, I'm fully capable of doing what that person's done and that allows me to forgive others. See, that I've just painted a, a couple of just comparing contrasts between the life of, of death, a life of self-centeredness, a life that tends towards anger, bitterness, disdain for others, and this new life that Paul's describing, saying, no, no, when you receive grace and salvation from God, there's a contentment that comes into your life. There's a forgiveness. There's an acceptance of others. There's a whole new way at a heart level to operate. And you can identify these two different lives. And wonder, how is it then possible to ever get across? How do you ever move from death to life, from this bitterness, grumpiness, anger, into this life of contentment and forgiveness and the streams of living water flowing through? How is that even possible? How do you move from a life where you're trying to get all the combinations right and you're exhausted and you're sitting on a hard floor going, it's not working, to a life of saying, I've received so much. There's a, there's a God who's presenced himself with me that I can walk with, that I can do life with. And that's what Paul then addresses in between. And you'll notice the key words are right at the beginning of verse 4. He says, but God, but God, that is, that is the key. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Which, by the way, was very bad grammar, right? He shouldn't have added this extra sentence, but he can't help it. He's just like, guys, I have to do this. By grace, you've been saved. He, he breaks the literary convention at this point. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, that is the key Word. It's what he spoke about in the whole of chapter 1, speaking about the Father's plan, the Son coming to purchase us, the Spirit sealing us and giving us his presence. And there's another cultural uh, understanding here which really helped me if I, I spoke about boosting or boasting in ourselves. This phrase here, raised us up with him, raised us up with him, is another cultural reference we might miss. At the time, they would have known that if, if the the battle had been raging outside the city and a conquering hero had come back and said, you know, guys, we've just defeated the, the, whoever it was that attacking us. What would happen is the whole city would take that conquering uh, general, they would raise them up and they would lift them and set them at the right hand of the authority in the city. It was a very common thing. There was a place of honor which would be given to the person who'd conquered. And the obvious picture here, which 
Paul's speaking about here is that Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, has conquered our sin, has conquered our self-centeredness, has has gone to the place of authority. He is the one that we look to. But he has this incredible thing. Did you pick it up? That he's raised us up with him. That it's not just him given that rightful place of authority at the right hand. No, it's it's us that have been incredibly raised up with him and given a place of honor. This is where you are now seated when you are in Christ. It says here we're seated already there in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Okay, now obviously it doesn't mean right now in a literal sense that we're seated with him. We haven't been raised from the dead. We're not literally with him yet, as far as I can tell. So we're not literally there, but what's happened is we are legally there. We're not literally situated there, but we are legally situated. We have been given the track record of Jesus Christ in the sight of God. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you experience his salvation, all your sins, all your rebellion, all your self-centeredness, all the followings of the world that you conducted have now been placed under him, have been covered by him. You're so covered that you're treated as if you've done everything that he's done. God delights in you so much that he honors and accepts you the same way he honors and accepts his son. He rejoices over you the way he rejoices over his own son. How could that be? How could that be? And there's a little hint there in verse 7 when it says that all of this came because of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That word kindness is another English word that doesn't quite make it all the way through in terms of meaning. What it actually means is it's not sentiment. It's not like, oh, God's so kind to us. It means, it means costly action. It means that God, in, in his kindness, in his, in, his, in his costly action, he actually showed us his love for us. He put his money where his mouth is. He, he, he came for us. His kindness drove him to action, that, that, that we can be seated with him in the heavenly places. And as I pull this all together, this is how this is how you would see it. This life we, we once lived, this life we now get to live, how it all ties together. You see, in the first three verses, it speaks about the essence of our sin being us on the thrones of our own lives. Us, as Luther would say, curved in on ourselves. Us self-centered, walking in, in our sin and our trespasses. And our sin is essentially us putting ourselves in the place of God. But yet this new life is available to us, verses 8 to 10. Because of Jesus Christ and, and because of his conquering death, we, we can experience life. How does that happen? I think of John Stott. He put it perfectly. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself in place of God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We've put ourselves in the place where God should be, but now God's putting himself in the place where we should be. How does this work? How does this work? If I've gone through this and you've kind of gone, Paul, I identify far more with the grumpiness, the anger, the kind of disappointment, the disdain. How do I get blasted out of my own self-centeredness? I mean, how does that even happen? Like, make this practical for me. How do I get blasted out of my self-centeredness? How, how, do you, how does that happen? Well, it, it happens by the Spirit at work right now in your heart, showing you that your self-centeredness has been confronted by the absolute opposite, by the absolute opposite, Jesus Christ on the cross. You have the, the most radically unself-centered thing ever happening in the history of the world. The one who was equal with the Father, emptying himself and coming and placing himself on the cross and saying, my life for yours, my life for yours. And when you see him doing that, when you know he's done that for you, you can finally say, you know what, there's a, there's a boast that has stopped all other boasts. When I'm late at night trying to think of all the things I bring to the party, all the things that I center on, there's, there's a boast that stops all of that. There's a boast that says the God who created me is the same God who emptied himself and 
took my place on the cross. Galatians 6, Paul, speaking about this, says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You don't sit trying to get all the dials right in your life, trying to get it all to work, the perfect life that's in another side. You stop and you take your hands off. You say, God, my self-centeredness is precisely what makes me dead to you. I, I long to be filled with your spirit and your acceptance and your love for me. And we start to boast in Christ. And as a result, we get crucified to the world and the world to us, but we aren't daunted anymore. We're not knocked over. We're not, we're not distracted. We're not, we're not angry. We're not disdainful. We start to revel in the gift that we've received, this great gift. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. We're going to respond in communion. And there's one final picture that I want to leave us with. Um, remember I said that the, the, the armies would often have to motivate themselves. They'd stand the night before and say, oh, we've got this. We've got the great king. We've got the great numbers. We've got the great weapons. And what the early church would motivate themselves with wasn't any of that stuff. They would look to Jesus. They would look to him. They would say, we have the great king. Whilst other armies would look at all the weapons and the spears and the daggers, what Christians would look at is a cross. And they would look at a king who had a spear put into his side. A king who laid down his life, the most radically opposite action to self-centeredness. And when you look at him doing that for us, you see him binding up our wounds. You see him blasting us out of our self-centeredness. You see him moving us to a life of grace and faith, that we look beyond our selfishness and look to his selflessness. Can I ask you to please stand? Uh, We are going to have an opportunity to be blasted out of our self-centeredness. There's going to be a table of juice and some bread at the front, also along the sides and at the back. And there's a moment for us to respond now. If you've identified, as I've been talking, much more with an attitude of um, life's unfair and, and I just need to make it work with the right combinations, there's a whole new life available to you now to be to be blasted out of your self-centeredness and to come to the communion table, which is a, a moment to accept this king, this absolutely selfless king who, instead of making us pay for our sins, paid for our sins in our place. There's a selflessness that we can, we can look to. We can bring our sin and our rebellion and say, God, I need you to not just be my savior, but also to be my Lord, to lead me in a way that I, I actually make this practical for my life. Some of us will be doing this for the first time. Some of us might need to be doing it again, but with a fresh appreciation for our great King. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond in communion. Got the key words this morning. Oh, there's two words that, but God, but God, you've, you've intervened. Fiend. you've changed history you've blasted us out of our self-centeredness and there's nothing in us that deserved that action God there's nothing that we can look to to boast in it's only you it's your action it's your grace that we receive as a gift this morning as we come to your t- communion table some of us for the first time but all of us acknowledging that it's a gift that we are receiving here at the table. We thank you, Jesus Christ, as our King, that you laid down your life. You didn't take up a spear, but you took a spear in your side. 
to pay the price for our rebellion. And God, that right now as we come forward and respond in communion and in worship, our prayer is that your spirit would come and work in our hearts, that we would more and more live out of this gift that you have given us. Let's do that now. Let's come and respond in communion and worship.